Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. And today, I am your only host. <laughs> Doing things a little different. We've never done this before, but my co-host, Mariah Rose, is on the other side of the country, dipping her feet in the ocean right now, while I'm here left doing all the hard work. But because we're true professionals, the show must go on. So, today's episode will be a solo episode from me, E.K., and since Mariah's not here to speculate on what EK stands for, I'll go with my friends over at the Bad Taste Video podcast, uh, their version. EK stands for Ernie Cake Stand for them. So today will be a very special episode because Mariah's not here, which means I can do whatever I want. And if I can do whatever I want, I'm naturally going to do one thing. The one thing she's denied me for years now of every time asking. And that is to cover not only a David Pryor film, not only an AIP, but the quintessential David Pryor AIP, 1987's Deadly Prey. In Nam, he was the perfect killer. Now, he'll have to prove it again. Run, you're gonna die. My Phantom is Danton. You know him? Know him. I trained him. They turned the killer loose on themselves. Troy Donahue, Fritz Matthews, and Cameron Mitchell star in a film so violent it cannot be rated. Viewer caution advised. Killer and teacher face off in a final battle. Only one can survive in Deadly Prey. All right, look, guys. So Mariah's loss is clearly your gain. Uh, Deadly Prey is a film I've been trying to get her to watch for a long time. We have done two David Pryor films for previous episodes. We did Killer Workout and we did Death Chase, both of which she loved. I just don't know why she's against doing this, but... Doesn't matter, because we're doing it today. Deadly Prey has got cult status for a good reason. Some of you may have not seen it yet. Many of you may be very familiar with, with it. It's, uh, it's got a lot of hype around it, but for good reason. And there have been a lot of podcast episodes on it. So rather than just doing a walkthrough, like every other podcast, because I have a deep love for AIP and David Pryor, I thought this would be a good opportunity to do something a little more unique, which is to talk about who the Pryor brothers were, how AIP came to be, and then how Deadly Prey became the phenomenon that it became. So this should be an interesting episode, more informative. <laughs> and uh, when you're done, you'll be able to tell all your friends at your next um, fancy dinner party about the uh, Pryor brothers. We're going to start this whole journey with the man himself, David A. Pryor. He's a writer, a director, producer, occasional actor, if you want to call him that, uh, but quite a force, very similar to somebody like Fred Olin Ray, who just figured out how to make films and then just started making a ton of really low budget, very entertaining movies any way possible. Uh, he actually 
you know, talks about Fred in that same way that they were from that same era where the video market was booming in the early 80s. And if you could come out with a film that was even somewhat uh, comprehensible, you would get a release and you could make a little bit of easy money on it. So this is who we're dealing with, David Pryor. He was actually born in Newark, New Jersey, October 5th, 1955. Now he has a younger brother who was born a few years later, Ted. He was born August 9th, 1959. And these are the Pryor brothers that we're going to be discussing. So David's childhood, basically, he just grew up loving books. He, he read a lot. He really enjoyed comics and pulp novels. He loved Ray Bradbury stories, sci-fi in general. And his passion really was writing. He wanted to make a living as a writer. And so in the 70s, he decided to take the bold step to come out to L.A. and try and figure out how to make it in the film industry. That's really ambitious, especially because he didn't go to film school. He has no formal training he just really liked movies, and he just really liked writing, so hey, why not? See what happens. Meanwhile, on the other side, his brother Ted was actually having this pretty promising early career in professional bodybuilding, which comes as no surprise when you see Deadly Prey. Ted was the kind of more attractive brother. He was very, very muscular. He was a professional, like I said, a bodybuilder. Uh, he won several competitions on the East Coast and realized that if he was going to keep moving up, he had to go to the absolute, you know, heart of bodybuilding in the late 70s, which was in California, Venice Beach, Muscle Beach. So his brother was already out West. He decided to pack his bags and head there too. So by the late 70s, both the Pryor brothers were now relocated in California trying to pursue their passions. While Ted started getting hooked up in the whole bodybuilding scene and figuring things out. David, meanwhile, was obsessed with this idea of actually making a movie. He wanted to figure out some way of making a movie, even though he had no training. Eventually, by the early 80s, he got this idea for a horror film called Sledgehammer. Now we're going to have some real fun. Hey, an orgy! All right, that's what we're waiting for! You fool, what you have? Hey, let's get started. Put your shoes on. Oh, yeah, quiet, quiet. Oh, I'm talking about a seance. No, Chuck, no! How he was going to raise money for it was by taking out little ads in variety magazines and stuff. And hopefully there would eventually be an investor or two that would believe in it. And it worked out. They ended up scrounging up, I think, about $40,000. And he managed to get enough money to, to try his hand at his first feature film. Obviously, 35mm is crazy expensive. So he opted for the newer technology, which was home video. Pick up your own camera and shoot your own movie. Shot on video was very, very new at this point. I mean, really, prior to this, the only big one was Boarding House. So this was uncharted territory, but it was a way for an independent filmmaker to get a movie made with no money. He didn't know any actors, so he's got a really buff, good-looking brother. He said, Ted, you're going to be in Sledgehammer. And Ted said, uh, okay, sure, whatever. And they go to David's apartment and over a few days shoot 
this very low budget, very nonsensical slasher, uh, supernatural slasher in a way, called Sledgehammer. Now, Sledgehammer in kind of the horror community in general is very well known because it's an early entry in the shot on video genre, like Black Devil Doll from Hell, Blood Cult is the more popular one, but this was here first. So Sledgehammer, for all its faults, uh, does it has a charm, but it's also just historically important to horror filmmaking. At the time this is being created, they're pretty young. David himself was only like 27, 28 years old, which would have made Ted, you know, in his early 20s. As far as I read, they had a really good time making it. I mean, you can tell that when you watch the movie, but they also had ambitions to do more. So right after Sledgehammer came out, Ted's not quite sure what he wants to do. He doesn't really know if bodybuilding is is his passion. He is getting into a little bit of modeling. He's becoming a regular in Playgirl magazine. He's quite popular with the ladies. In fact, in March of 1984, he's the Playgirl Man of the Month centerfold. So there you go. <laughs> he's, he's enjoying this newfound interest in his body and thinking, well, maybe uh, acting isn't something I had planned on, but I'm willing to try more of. And so by 1985, the next year, David gets this grand idea that maybe he can convince some people for a bit more money and make a, a more of a real movie. And they decide to make the movie Kill Zone. This is shot on 35 millimeters. So this is like the first real go at, at a movie after that independent sledgehammer. It also is going to include a lot of the mainstays in David Pryor's films. One thing you know, like most quirky directors, they they have their crew and their cast and they stick with them over and over and over. David Lynch does it. Uh, you know, Tim Burton does it. I mean, everybody does it where you, you know those actors. They show up time and time again. For David Pryor, right away we're getting the early cast that's going to go throughout many of his films. Uh, Fritz Matthews is there. David Campbell is there. William Zip, a personal favorite. They're all on the set of Kill Zone in 1985. And this is really the beginnings of the David Pryor film that we're going to grow to love over the next several years. So with Killzone and Sledgehammer under his belt, David is now ready to get into filmmaking full time. He actually partners up in 1986 with another director producer named David Winters. He was a, a lot more seasoned. He had been around and he had just finished the cult classic, the skateboarding film Thrashin'. And was pretty upset with the way the studio kind of took it over. He wanted a lot more control. So he and David Pryor, along with a third guy named Peter Yovel, decided to start their own production studio. That was Action International Pictures, or better known in, in the kind of tape collecting world as AIP. <laughs> AIP Home Video. There was an AIP already, a lot of the Roger Corman stuff back in the 60s and 70s. This was different. They actually didn't even consider that when this name was created. It just happened to work out that way. So there are two AIPs, if you're wondering. Now that AIP is established, they are ready to start making movies. And they need to be able to make cheap movies that are entertaining and easy to sell. That's the whole point of this, is to make money. As David Pryor said in interviews... The boom of the 1980s home video market was so huge that if you could shoot something on 35 millimeter, 
and make it edit, edit it just well enough, it was absolutely going to get picked up and distributed and you'd make a pretty good chunk of change very easily. So they're trying to figure out how to make quick movies, cheap movies, but entertaining movies that would be easy to sell. And the very first one they create is the 1987 masterpiece, one of my all-time favorite films and a previous episode, Killer Workout, a.k.a. Aerobicide. If you'll remember, if you've seen it, it does have uh, Ted Pryor's in it, as well as Fritz Matthews, and they battle in it. <laughs> David Campbell's there. He's the detective. So there's the whole crew from Killzone. They're all back for Killer Workout, and they're all starting to figure out how to make movies. Right after Killer Workout, same year, 1987, they decide they're going to create a new movie, but the next movie they want to create needs to be action-packed, not a horror. Well, as the story goes, Ted and David had just gone to the theater and watched First Blood, Rambo himself, Sly Stallone, the Italian stallion, and came out thinking, hey, (laughs) that looks pretty easy. We could do that. We could do that really cheap, too. And that is, as the story goes, the, the foundation for how we get to Deadly Prey. Friend or enemy? I'm a friend. You're a liar. So the brothers talk it over and they say, yep, we can shoot it out in the forest for no money, run around killing people relatively easy. We'll just model it entirely after Rambo. They don't hide the fact at all. It's absolutely a cheap knockoff. And David, in true David Pryor form, as Ted says, with all of his scripts, locks himself in his room for two days and comes out with a fully realized movie. That's not hard to believe considering uh, the lack of depth in this film. I think you could probably write this in two days very easily, but he has it ready and they are not going to waste any time. So right off the heels of Killer Workout, they immediately go into production for Deadly Prey. So like I said, 1987, they begin production on Deadly Prey. It is going to be filmed in Riverside, California, and then uh, the forest in the San Fernando Valley. So that's where this all takes place. So like I said, I'm not doing a walkthrough, more just kind of what what is Deadly Prey and why is it so popular? The basic premise is that there's this group of evil mercenaries, very incompetent evil mercenaries, I might add, who like to just kidnap unsuspecting people on the street, take them out to a secret location in the forest, and then hunt them in real life as practice to become really good mercenaries. Sounds foolproof. The problem is that one day they kidnap the wrong guy, and the the hunters become the hunted. (laughs) That's kind of your, your basic overview of Deadly Prey. To pull this off, You need a good cast, so let's reassemble the old team. Your lead, this is his big lead, and this is the the moment that Ted Pryor said he felt like he was actually becoming an actor, is the man himself. Ted Pryor plays Michael Danton, who is a Vietnam vet who's now living kind of the quiet life in suburbia with his wife, doesn't want any trouble, 
But as the tagline on the front of the box says, in Vietnam, he was the best, and he still is. So that's who we're dealing with. That's our star, Michael Danton. Next, we have David Campbell, who we've already discussed several times. He plays Colonel Hogan, who's this like sadistic leader of the mercenary group who taught, spoiler, Danton everything he knows. So now we've got some drama. Although, although we have to find this backstory out through the course of the film, we don't learn it up front. So David Campbell, like I mentioned, had been in a couple films already, but he'd go on to be in a bunch of other prior films. So this is really for you fellow prior fans like myself out there. David Campbell also has been in, like I said, Kill Zone, Killer Workout, but he went on to do Hell on the Battleground and Night Claws, which is a later David Pryor film after VHS that came out on DVD. That's a good one if you haven't seen it. Then we have another returning uh, cast member, Fritz Matthews himself. He plays Lieutenant Thornton, who is this absolutely psychotic right-hand man of Colonel Hogan. We'll get into him later. He's also been in Kill Zone, Killer Workout. He did Operation War Zone and Hell on the Battleground. Another return is Cameron Mitchell, who plays Jamie's father and really has no point to this film other than killing one of the baddies. Like, his character's really useless. But there's a reason why he seems so useless, which I'll explain later. You'd also know him from a previous episode of Laser Graves, Space Mutiny, which is awesome. Uh, Troy Donahue, an old veteran actor, has a little role in this film as well. But there's also William Zip, who... For AIP fans and David Pryor fans, you know, Ted gets a lot of attention, but really the champion for me is William Zip. I love this guy. I think he's a great actor. He's so much fun. And he's in a ton of David Pryor's films. William Zip in this plays Coop, who is uh, Danton's like former Vietnam buddy. Uh, he's got a pretty good role. But Zip has been in Kill Zone as well, but he went on to do a, a very iconic role in Man Killers as the, as the main bad guy. Did Operation War Zone, Jungle Assault, Future Force, Center of the Web, but his standout film, if you're a William Zip fan, is easily a film called Death Chase, which we also covered previously on Laser Graves. It is so much fun, and it, it's where William Zip gets to shine finally as the star of the show instead of a supporting actor. And it is over-the-top bonkers. It's a lot of fun. Highly recommend Death Chase if you haven't seen it. So that's the main cast. That's uh, all the returning prior, you know, main guys that are going to come together to make Deadly Prey. It was shot in 13 days on 35mm. And here's a funny little story is that I think two days prior to shooting, David Winters comes up to David Pryor and says, Hey, great news. I managed to get Cameron Mitchell and Troy Donahue, both very seasoned, established actors, to agree to be in the film. You need to figure out what they're going to do. And David Pryor said, well, I don't have parts for them. So he wrote them into the script two days before shooting, which explains why they seem pretty out of place and pretty useless to begin with, but they weren't going to pass up the chance to work with them. Okay, enough with all the backstory. Let's actually get into a little bit of the film itself and what makes it just so very special. If you need, maybe I can just set the tone for you, the mood, with a little bit of the soundtrack. <laughs> Here you go.
Gate, Deadly Prey. Like Killer Workout, uh, Ted Pryor should not take out the trash, especially when Fritz Matthews is around. Because in both movies, they get into altercations and uh, trouble happens. Trouble follows Ted Pryor when he takes out the trash. But basically, Fritz Matthews is, is overseeing the mercenary group. They need new bodies to hunt in the forest. And they end up grabbing an unsuspecting Michael Danton taking out the garbage. They don't know who they've just grabbed. But they throw him in the van. They take him out to the middle of nowhere, totally undisclosed location to do this live human hunting. Uh, Even though we'll find out later that it's apparently not that hard to find this location. Also, this place is... Not only in the woods, it's covered in military vehicles, too. It's like this whole secret military base. About that base, this is really clever on the part of the Pryor brothers, is needing to make the film seem bigger than they had the budget for. All that military stuff that's there, all the vehicles and everything else, they actually got access to all of that for their film by just agreeing to shoot on the actual property of the American Heritage Military Museum. So they said, sure, if you shoot on our property, you can drive our tanks or whatever around. So that's why it looks like they got access to all these military vehicles. I thought that was pretty clever, actually. Our first view of the ready-to-be-hunted Danton is him this in his true form, completely buff, over-the-top buff, He's stripped down to just a pair of Daisy Dukes, some like, you know, short shorts, ripped jeans, and only his muscles and his mullet to like keep him alive. He's uh, very buff. Looks like the Incredible Hulk had uh, little little kid jeans on and ripped him off as he was growing. He takes off running into the forest because he's going to be hunted. So... It seems like you're run-of-the-mill, let's hunt another human for practice, but they don't know that they've just unleashed the greatest that ever was, Michael Danton. What's funny about this film and the pacing of this film is there's no time wasted at all. It just it keeps amping up. He takes, he wastes no time killing every mercenary that's on his trail trying to hunt him. He just easily dispatches them. And this really baffles Colonel Hogan, he's like, there's no way that's happening. Who is this guy? So he goes out to the crime scene of all his dead mercenaries laying on the ground and delivers this line that cracks me up. I know this. I know this style. It's my style. Okay, so let's unpack that for just a second. A few things are revealed. One, a little bit of the backstory is that he trained Danton to to be the amazing killer that he is. You know him? Know him. I trained him. But more importantly, he recognizes the way in which they died as being his own style. (laughs) Keep in mind, the way they died was just a knife to the chest. So I didn't realize that it could be that unique of a stab wound through army fatigues to recognize your own style. But hey, crazier things have happened. So from that point on, basically the whole film is just Ted Pryor shirtless and shoeless running through the the woods setting up booby traps for these mercenaries and hiding in small trees. And it's just over the top ridiculous. That's what makes this film so much fun is it's just amped up to 11 
clearly a Rambo ripoff, but like just anything goes. It's so much fun to watch. Ted Pryor is all in with this role, by the way. Like he gives it his all as Michael Danton, the this amazing uh, killer, you know, former Vietnam vet who cannot be stopped. Fully committed. He actually duct taped the bottom of his feet so that he could run around the woods barefoot. I didn't. I guess it didn't really help him that much. There's even a, a very well known scene where he eats a worm and apparently it was going to be a fake worm and then he was getting mad because it looked dumb and he said let's just make this look real and he said right there on the spot they dug in the dirt and found a worm and he ate it and he really hams it up for the camera to make sure everybody knows he's eating a worm (laughs) oh no that that aside what makes me laugh about this is that kind of the timeline in this it's like he's only been in the woods for i don't know like half a day but he's had to resort already to digging up worms and eating them just to survive. I don't know if that's really how that works in uh, survival situations. I think you could go a little longer than a half a day. But he's he's doing whatever it takes to survive in these crazy woods. This whole film, though, is just filled with so much fun. So many ridiculous kills. Danton runs around like he's got time to carve homemade spears, which he can just throw through people. He hides in the water like a crocodile, you know, and then just as they're filling up their canteen pops out and (laughs) kills them. He's at one point (laughs) he's hiding under a pile of leaves, you know, like like when a dad is raking leaves during yard work and then pops out of the leaves to scare his kids. He does that, but but kill somebody. Uh, but probably the best are the tree scenes. He he really likes hiding in trees. There's one scene in particular that is so ridiculous where this entire group of elite trained mercenaries are all walking through the woods looking for him. And they pass right under a tree. And this tree is not big at all. I mean, it is. he is sitting on a tiny branch literally right above them and they are unable to see him or detect him it's so so incredible and uh, i saw an interview with ted Pryor, and he was saying he pointed that out to his brother david he said you know this branch is dumb you can't have me this low they would know i'm there just by accident and he said that david being his typical older brother was like you don't know how to make a film that's not even for you to decide trust me It'll be out of shot, and then I'll pan it up, and it'll look like you're way up in the trees. And then when he saw the final product, uh, yep, that's not what happened. But, uh, you know, David meant well. The movie just keeps going. It just, the kill count is through the roof. It just is staggering how many people die. Not only at the hands of Michael Danton, let me tell you that either. Fritz Matthews has an anger management problem and will kill, and Colonel Hogan, They'll just kill their own men totally at random. Also, Cameron Mitchell's walking around and he's killing people too. Everybody dies in this movie. It's so over the top. I think, though, my favorite line is when one of the mercenaries realizes that they're all being picked off and there's no way out and uh, delivers this really uh, amazing observation. Christ, we're not hunting him. He's hunting us. The whole film is just hilarious. It's very charming. Just be along for the ride and enjoy it for what it is. This top secret hunting ground that they've been on, by the way, it's, it's just 
there seems to be no problem finding it because at one point in the actual film, Danton just walks away. He just jogs out of the hunting grounds. Who knows how many miles they are from the city all the way back to his apartment in just his short shorts, <laughs> finds that his wife's gone and then jogs all the way back to the hunting ground. So, uh, I mean, it's not too hard to find. In addition to that, his wife's father, played by Cameron Mitchell, who was a veteran of the police force for 30 years, this old guy also has zero problems finding this elite mercenary hunting ground and infiltrates it by himself. Just an old guy walking around. It's, it's funny. When I say that everybody dies, I mean everybody dies. I think Danton's kill count alone is over 60. It's, it's so much fun. And they're very creative. All the like booby traps and knives through the heart. And I mean, it's just, it's really funny. All of that is part of what makes this such a, a cult film, but it's really, it's really about the ending, this iconic ending of Deadly Prey. If you think it's a slow burn or you're not sure what it's about, you need to wait until you get to the end and just see it through. And the payoff is over the top. It's so much fun. What happens at the end is there's this final showdown between Danton and Thornton, who is played by Fritz Matthews. There's a lot that happens. I won't give it all away uh, leading up to it, but I'm going to definitely give away what happens after that. Thornton pulls out a gun and starts shooting at Danton point blank. He's directly, he's like four feet from him. But Danton somehow is dodging bullets at point blank range, takes his machete, cuts off the arm of Thornton, then grabs his arm and beats him to death with it. If that wasn't enough, after he's beat him to death with his own severed arm, he then scalps him and holds it up. And that, that is how he takes him out. And it is just as amazing as it sounds. Trust me. This is all happening to while this soundtrack just keeps playing over and over this cue in particular which when i hear it is like a pavlov's dog it just immediately makes me react with laughter this is playing the whole time so that's the gist of deadly prey it's just this just crazy action film where everything's amped up to 11. There's really nothing below the surface. Trust me, you're not going to find any kind of moral story, any deep meaning. It's just a guy running around killing everybody. It's released on video on November 2nd, 1987. And actually, because of that release date, I have this week's fun fact. <laughs> Okay, so for those collectors that are on Instagram, tape collectors, you probably follow one of the biggest accounts on there, this guy named VCR of Death. He has a really fun account. He's always showing just little clips of old cheesy movies from the 80s and stuff. Just nice guy. We chat a lot, but he, he's got really great taste in low budget films and he absolutely loves Deadly Prey. So every year on November 2nd, he's celebrates what he's declared as Prey Day. And 
invites everybody to show their love for the movie Deadly Prey. So the timing is actually pretty close. So this year, if you're on Instagram and you own some version of Deadly Prey on November 2nd for VCR of Death, you should join in the fun on Prey Day. That's pretty, pretty cool. As far as the reception, you know, there really wasn't much. It was just for home video. So it comes out, it just gets lost in the fold of a billion Rambo knockoffs from the mid 80s, even though this one's extra special. But the prior brothers are established now, and they're just going to continue knocking out film after film after film. Just really a lot of cheap action movies through AIP. Most of them are all very entertaining. As far as the history of AIP, though, by the early 90s, David Winters is kind of over it, and he wants to do his own thing. So he buys out the other two owners, including David Pryor, and converts AIP into what became known as West Side Studios. West Side Studios is just a little nod to his past. He was in West Side Story, so, you know, he's an actor. But that's why if you if you have some of David Pryor's later films, you'll see that they were released on West Side Studios because he did actually do a couple films for, for that production company. Okay, that's it for Deadly Prey until we flash forward. So here is the final part of this episode today, which is... What happened to Deadly Prey after 1987, after it came out on home video and you could rent it a couple times and that was that? To the knowledge of the Pryor brothers, nothing happened. This film was forgotten in time, like all of their films, and everybody just went on their way. David continued to shoot films. Ted kind of would help out when he could, but really just uh, he started raising a family, was kind of devoted to family life in general. They were laying pretty low, though, until 2011. So in 2011, this is very common for cult films from the 80s, Ted is contacted by this young organizer who works for a place called CineFamily in L.A., and he informs them that Deadly Prey has gained all of this kind of following online with the younger generation. It's found a second footing, and it's, be- it's achieved this cult status in in the film world and ted's totally baffled by this like this all comes as a complete surprise to him but he's asked to come out and attend a screening of deadly prey in la so he agrees not knowing what to expect he shows up and he says like the response is insane and he had no clue that there was this whole fan base online for deadly prey so he has a blast he hangs out with fans takes photos all that kind of stuff but the next day he calls up david his brother and says, you're, you're like never going to believe what's going on. Apparently, people know about this movie and they love it. So, of course, David being David and seeing, you know, financial possibilities says, well, let's really see if there truly are fans out there. They have the discussion and come to the conclusion that it would be a good idea to do a Deadly Prey Part 2. <laughs> so, for you David Pryor fans, maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. Uh, yeah, this decision happened and Deadliest Prey was conceptualized again in no time, 2013. So this is shortly after these screenings. So Ted started being asked to go to more screenings and that's when they were like, we should really capitalize on this new wave of interest in the film. I have personal feelings about this, as do I think most fans This happens a lot. It's kind of a problem sometimes where 
directors or actors find out 20, 30 years later that their film that they thought nobody knew about became, you know, iconic and, and cult status. And instead of just embracing it, they get the idea that maybe they should try and, you know, bring it back to life. I think this is kind of problematic from day one. It's doomed to begin with because everything that makes it cult status, obviously, is because it's a product of its time. If you know why it became famous, you're going to be too self-aware going into a sequel. I would liken this to Return to Splatter Farm. I love Splatter Farm. I love the Polonia brothers. But Return to Splatter Farm, it's just, it falls flat in so many ways because it's too little too late. Uh, It's just, they should have just let it kind of be its own special thing. I, you know, John had passed away at that point. So it was just Mark Polonia doing it. And it just feels very forced. I would say that's very similar to Deadliest Prey. Now, there may be some fans out there. And if you, this is your favorite movie of all time. But I mean, hey, good for you. I'm just going to tell you my review of it being realistic as a very big David Pryor fan. They get the the crew back, which is good. They get the the cast back. So Ted reprises his role as Danton. David Campbell is back because it turns out that he's been in prison this whole time. And he comes back as Hogan. And then they even managed to get this. I did like this. Fritz Matthews comes back, but he's not his character from the first one who got his arm cut off and then scalped. He's his twin brother who looks just like him. So it's a way that they can reintroduce him. I thought that was actually pretty funny. Deadliest Prey has its moments, I'm not going to lie. Like, there are some funny scenes in there. But overall, it's just way too self-aware, in my opinion. It also doesn't look right. Like, Deadly Prey was shot on 35mm. This is shot on video, and it looks really low-budget, really cheap. And with the original actors now all much older, dressed up as, like, almost a parody of their own characters running around with this cheap production. Here's my totally blunt take on it, is it feels like a fan film, which can be fun for sure, but it doesn't feel like an actual sequel that's going to hold the same kind of weight as the original. It's just that it was way too heavy of an ask to to try that. You know, they, they tried. Good for them. There are some really funny scenes, though, in it. My favorite easily is this scene where there's a mercenary walking around the corner and Danton has a grenade and he says, hey, heads up. And he throws him the grenade and the mercenary just holds the grenade with this dumb look on his face and then (laughs) blows up. And then the following scene is just a combat boot with a part of a leg and it's on fire just sitting there. I I laugh pretty hard at that. Also, there's this whole aspect to to the film where... The kills are being streamed online for people to see, and there are these hackers that are watching it. There's this one in particular who she constantly keeps saying true dat over, and it really makes me laugh after like the 10th time. You think I'm joking? Here's what she says. Well, we don't know until we look. You know it. True that. It might, so why don't we take a look at it until we find out. True that. So it's like there are moments that are actually funny, but there's a lot of moments that's very forced. My biggest complaint, though, and my biggest gripe about Deadliest Prey is that it is 100% the exact same film. Like the premise, it's it's just a remake. 
He literally gets kidnapped again by the same guy, put into the exact same situation and hunted by the same people again to have a show off with Fritz's twin brother and cuts off his arm and beats him with the arm. So at that point, that's when I was like, man, I love the idea of reprising the characters, but they were really just hamming it up for the fans a little too much. And that's not what I wanted it anyway. It just falls flat. There's a lot of one-liners in this too that don't exist in the first one, but there's also a couple good quotes from some of the other characters. There's this female mercenary who's their badass. And at one point she's got like her, her boot on his crotch crushing and uh, she delivers this line. I could crush them right now, just like walnuts. You can crush whatever you want, but I'm still gonna kill you. So it does have a feel of a, of a classic prior film, but it's just, I just don't think it maybe should have happened. Maybe it'll grow on me the more I watch it, but it's a little weird to watch. Regardless, Deadly Prey has an official sequel called Deadliest Prey. As far as the Pryor brothers after that, shortly after David A. Pryor died on August 16th, 2015 in Alabama, and Ted's still around. He's like totally soaking in this whole cult status now of, of Danton. So good for him. He really owns it. He has fun with it. He embraces it. Deadly Prey just continues to grow in, in notoriety and infamy. Uh, it is a hyped film, but for good reason. I think you got to watch it. It's a fun film. It's available on VHS. That's what I have. I have the, the Sony release of it. It's a pretty pricey film now, but I, I did finally get a Blu-ray and I'm sure it's streaming, so it's not hard to watch anymore. You can watch it if you want. And with that being said, that is my look at AIP, The Pryor Brothers, Deadly Prey, and the follow-up Deadliest Prey. <laughs> Hopefully that was enjoyable. I think it's interesting. I think for fans, uh, maybe they'll find some new information in there they didn't know. If you have not seen Deadly Prey, I highly recommend it. If you've only seen that and you haven't seen other David Pryor films, I highly recommend others. Deadly Prey is actually not my favorite David Pryor film. It's a, it's a good one. Killer Workout is 100% my favorite one. But Man Killers is great. And then a big one that I would recommend is Night Wars. Night Wars is a really fantastic film. So there's a lot out there to see. He's got a bunch of them. If you like what you heard, uh, even though I'm solo today, I'm sorry. I know you guys miss Mariah because she's the charming one. But... We, we still got you an episode. But if you like what you hear, heard, please rate, review, subscribe. Tell all your friends about us. If you really like us, join our Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash lasergraves. You can find us anywhere and everywhere you get your podcast, or you can go to lasergraves.com for back episodes like the ones I mentioned in this episode. We really appreciate the support. We love doing this podcast, but, uh, you know, we need to grow it too. So if you can just help spread the word, that would be great. As always, go follow our friends, all of our fellow podcasters out there. Go check them all out and we'll post about them in our stories. Otherwise, you can follow us on Instagram at Lasergraves. And until next time, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Keep those shorts extra short. Keep flexing. See you next time. Bye.